into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Everyone, welcome back to the Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know we say when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm your friendly neighborhood podcast theologian, Samson Kovach, welcoming you back to the yeah, my mouth is working. Welcoming you back to another edition of the Theology Pit. And what we are going to be discussing in the next few uh, Theology Pit episodes is going to be the Doctrine of Justification, and we're going to be discussing it from the position of Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. So if you want to have your Bibles ready whenever we are looking through these seven verses, um, you know, please, I encourage that. I highly, highly encourage that. Uh, we're going to probably be making some changes to the theology pit in the future here, um, especially in regards to the website. And more information will be coming up later on that. But first, let's hop right into our discussion. Now, with the letter to the Galatians, the dating of Galatians is generally agreed upon within a five-year span. Um, Most theologians will say it's between like... AD 51 and AD 48, or I should say AD 48 and AD 51. Um, and that's all depending on when, uh, you know, when they think um, Barnabas may have been with Paul if the letter was written to Northern Galatia or Southern Galatia. Uh, and that, there's there's a reason for that, because is, is Paul the one with the people who are you know, accusing, uh, you know, is, is he someone that went and founded the church in Galatia with Paul or you know, possibly not? So the reason why I wanted to do a, a, a discussion on this topic here is because, well, first off, I haven't done a theology pit in a while and, and I need to start, you know, getting it going, getting it back up and uh, getting you guys some regular content. But there are a lot of podcasts out there right now discussing um, justification, uh, salvation, how how someone becomes right with God. And it's being done from particular perspectives. And while we're going through this study, I will be talking about the different perspectives. And what's interesting is that these different perspectives, how uh, whichever ones you hold to, it's going to determine your theological imper- interpretive practices. So, for example, if you have a particular view of what it means to be saved, what it means to be made righteous by God, you are going to read that view into uh, Scripture you're going to see the legitimacy of that view. And usually that's the standard that everybody starts with. So the majority of Protestant uh, podcasts that you hear um, that deal with this issue, you can really go back to the beginning of the doctrine of justification, its articulation, its formulation in uh, in the Middle Ages and working up through Luther and through Calvin and through the reformers, and you can start to see this understanding. Now, 
a lot of them focus very, very tightly on faith and on what it means to possess this faith, what this faith does, whether this faith is passive, whether this faith is active, how this faith behaves, because this faith is the key to the doctrine of justification. Whenever you sort of unlock this understanding of where the early reformers were, you can kind of get the understanding of why you are being taught what you are being taught about this doctrine. A modern day example of of what I mean, because some people are probably listening, saying you sound like you're talking in code, you're talking in circles. Let Let me explain this a little bit more. Um, there was a, uh, a movie out. I think it was called The Devil Wears Prada. I'm not really sure. It's, you know, uh, a movie I watched with my wife, and it's, it's based around, um, you know, a, a woman who's working with a uh, fashion designer, and, um, you know, she's starting with her and she's new to the business and she more cares about just being the assistant and not so much the fashion aspect of it and thinks that the fashion part of it isn't that important. You know, it's just a, a more of like a marketing thing. And you know, she doesn't try to dress well in the beginning and of course shame for that. But the um the the I guess the boss lady in it, she she makes the point to her. Um you know, she says to her, you're wearing a, you know, a, a blue top, a blue blouse or whatever it was. And she said to her, why, why are you wearing that? The girl doesn't understand really. And she's like, I just pulled out of, you know, out of my closet and put it on. She said, no, no, no. Why did you buy that? I said, well, cause I like that color blue. I like this color blue. And that's why I bought it because I like it. It's pretty to me. And, and that's it. And the woman says, no, no, you didn't. You know, you were conditioned, and I'm paraphrasing all this, you were conditioned to like that color of blue. You see, it started years ago at a fashion event that we had in which the designers were experimenting with that color blue. And it was that shade was put on everything. And and she was going through the history of the last couple years on why that particular shade of blue through mass appeal and through the usage of it subconsciously worked into that girl's head to where when she saw that shade of blue years later that she'd been so conditioned to that shade of blue that yes this is pretty and I'm going to buy it and that's why and she said so what you think was an independent choice actually was not it started way before that shirt was even made and this color was put forward and that's what we're doing here. We're putting forward, you know, the, the colors and the fashion trends for years down the line. Now, the same thing happens in theology. We have these trends that are put forward down the line. And so, when you have a particular understanding, let, let's take this, this understanding, for example. In the Middle Ages, the popular understanding... Um, you know, through people like Thomas Aquinas and, and, and others, was that Jesus Christ did not have faith. Okay, he had no faith at all because the understanding of faith is something that is required for 
salvation. It's it's a part of salvation. It's it's you know that that you actually believe in something in order to be saved. Well, Jesus Christ is perfect. He's sinless. What does he have to believe in? Well, nothing. So if he has faith, if he possesses something that he is using to believe in God in order to be saved, well, then he's not sinless. And we can't have that. So our understanding of faith and Jesus having faith In the Middle Ages, they were saying, no, Jesus can't have faith. So, therefore, when we would read a part of Scripture, a passage of Scripture, translate a passage of Scripture that might implicate that Jesus had faith, that it was his faith, that was rejected off the bat. And it would always be translated or be understood, not necessarily always translated, that's the interesting thing, it would be understood as faith in Christ. And if it was translated as Christ's faithfulness or the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ, it would be explained away and turned back on the the believer in order for that to be their faith. So, the understanding of the way that faith worked, that is this beginning color that we start with, with the Reformers and with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. All of the major understandings and the understandings that you may have of what it means when I say that you are justified by faith in Christ alone or justified by faith. That's immediately sitting on you as, okay, it's my faith in something and that justifies me. And the problem is, is that I don't think that Paul taught that. That is the color impression of 500 years now, recently, there, you know, I say recently, last hundred years or so, there's been a, a movement called the New Perspective of Paul. And really, when you do the research, it should be called the Paleo Perspective of Paul because it's an, it's an ancient understanding of Paul. It's an early church understanding of Paul um, that is being rediscovered and repopulated. And it is, in fact, that Jesus Christ does have faith. And what's funny is that this whole understanding of Christ having faith, modern theological scholars, modern theologians, um, even uh, Roman Catholics and people who follow Thomas Aquinas, the Thomists, um, none of them would say that Jesus did not have faith. They would all agree that Jesus had faith. Um, They're going to have a different opinion on the reason why he had faith, the necessity of him having faith. But what we're going to be looking at in this portion of Galatians, this is going to, you know, give us a better understanding of what Paul is getting at with, with Christ's faith. Now, there are implications for all, for everything that we, that we discuss. And and in theology, everything has a particular, uh, um, implication for the other parts of your theology. So, for example, um, you know, if, if we're looking at faith in Christ, 
and saying, okay, that's not what the translation should be. It should not be faith in Christ. It should be faith of Christ or faithfulness of Christ. Now, the faith of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ have two different implications. And these two different implications need to be understood. So if, if, we, if we choose to understand justification by the faith of Christ, are we dismissing individual human responsibility? If we choose faith in Christ instead, well, are we guilty to doing a work that's akin to the works of the law that Paul speaks out against? Because we're turning faith into a work. Even if we say it's passive, and that's what a lot of reformers did, um, Luther, Calvin, they all they say no, it's 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 passive. Um, you start to get into the Puritans, they start to say that it's it's active. The Arminians that it's it's active, it's an active faith, um, you know, passively received, actively used. Um, but if we choose faithfulness of Christ, are we saying that we are justified partly because of Christ's fidelity to the law? that justifies us, that he was faithful in fulfilling the law, therefore meriting our justification. Now, this is a reality that we're, we're going to see that Paul says can't occur, that that can't happen in this, in, in this sense of justification, because Paul's going to go on to make the argument that we're going to see here that faith is or the, rather the works of the law cannot justify. They can't. It's, it's, it, it, the, the law cannot justify. It's an impossibility. So before we get to our verses, we sort of need to understand what's going on before and what's going on after. And so the, the, the word is pericope. A pericope is a unit of thought. So the pericope that's leading up to um, chapter 2, verse 15 through 21, is that Paul is establishing that the gospel that he has been proclaiming and will shortly articulate in, in these verses is the same gospel. It's, it's the same message. He hasn't changed anything. So what happened was um, after collecting information from Peter and James, Paul um, departs to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. Uh, I probably said that all wrong. Cilicia. Cilicia. I'll just edit that out later. To proclaim the gospel for the next 14 years. Okay? So then, he receives a revelation, and that's in uh, Galatians 2.2. In in Galatians uh, 1.18-21, it talks about, you know, he's about proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles for the next 14 years. 2-2, he receives a revelation, and Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and he takes um, Titus and Barnabas um, with him, and they privately meet with some of the influential leaders in the church, okay? Um, Peter is there, of course. James is there. And what they do privately was he explains the way he is presenting the gospel and what he's saying. And at this time, there were Jews who were pretending to be Christians who were insinuating that, you know, Gentiles, that Greeks, namely Titus, that who was with them, he should be circumcised. And that's in Galatians 2, 3, and 4. Um, the, the leaders of the church 
they don't they don't buy into it. They don't surrender to their advances. Okay, and in Galatians five, they resist them, pretty much saying that they're 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 wrong. It's wrong to understand that, and they add nothing to what Paul has been proclaiming. This is this is extremely important for understanding this passage. That's in Galatians two six, because what this is saying is that what we are going to see, what Paul's going to tell us, is what happened at this private meeting and what he said to them. And it's what he's been saying for 14 years. So some time has passed. And of course, you know, Peter comes to Antioch and um, he's enjoying fellowship with the Gentile Christians and, you know, all that stuff. And then these, you know, pro-circumcision Jews arrive. And these are the ones that we can only extrapolate from, you know, a couple verses earlier um, that the, the leaders, you know, just told them to get lost and Peter just told them to get lost and, you know, and, and James and everyone else. So these aren't people that are from James and Peter and, 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 and the leaders. These are people that are claiming to be, you know, from, from, you know, of this group. And, and they must have, you know, gained in numbers. They must've gotten some, um, adherence to it. And, and you could, when you think about it, it wouldn't be that hard to do. Um, you know, if God is expanding the covenant to the Gentiles, then the old covenant, of course, must already exist. So why shouldn't those being brought into the new covenant have to still follow the same mandated things as the old covenant? Um, and they obviously have an intimidation factor because when they show up, you know, Peter and Barnabas stop eating with the Gentiles because that is considered sinful to do. Now, Galatians um, 2, 15 through 21 brings us up to this point that what was privately discussed is now going to be said. So if you read, if you, if you pause this right now and you go read Galatians 15 through 21, the bulk of that is going to be what that private conversation was all about. So, the difference is that we are now reading an account of justification which everyone had agreed upon, okay? Paul's not saying anything new, okay? This shouldn't come as a shock to Peter. And and I think he's writing it in this letter to the Galatians for the benefit of the Galatians because they have now been exposed to the law, to the practices of, of, of what it means to be a covenantal Jew, which they hadn't before. They, they had no understanding of, of the, um, the, the requirements that being in the covenant expressed. Now, what you need to understand is that the Jewish people were not doing these things in order to be justified. Okay. They weren't performing the sacrifices to be justified. They weren't circumcising to be justified. They weren't keeping dietary laws to be justified. What they were doing is they were expressing what was given to them because they had been justified, because by the promise of God and in doing these things, they were already in the covenant. 
if you ask them, are you saved? And they would say, yes. And they say, how do you know? Well, because I'm in the covenant. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. And, and you know, to prove that I'm in the covenant, I have certain works that I do that show my identification with the covenant that God established. And that's why I am saved. I'm justified only because of the grace of God, not because of anything that I do. Now, were there Jews at the time who, you know, um, actually believed that, you know, by doing certain works, they were meriting God's favor? And we're, well, yeah, I mean, come on, there are bad Jewish theologians then, just like there are bad Christian theologians today on this on this topic. So, we'll, we'll get to that, but just real quickly, right, right after... Um, you know, the, these seven verses, we come to chapter three. Okay. And in chapter three, Paul turns to the Galatians and he says something really, really startling. He says that in verse one, that Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified before their eyes. Okay. Now he's the reason why he can say this is true because honestly, probably the Galatia, the, the, the Gentiles in Galatia were probably nowhere near Jerusalem during the Passover when Christ was was crucified. So how can Paul say that, you know, that Jesus was vividly portrayed as crucified before their eyes? The reason why is that this is true is because a covenantal Jew with other natural Jews were living and eating among them. There was no other way without dying to the law in Christ and now living by Christ's faithfulness that could account for what they were witnessing in, in the way these, these Jewish people were behaving. So Paul continues addressing the Galatians on what it would look like to replace Christ with the law. How in doing so, uh, the curses that are placed on them would be by their own doing because God never intended the law for those outside his covenant grace. The Jewish Christians were not adding to Christ by choosing to follow the law because Christ had already fulfilled the obligation they had to it. The Gentiles were given only Christ and, and, and not the law. For the Gentiles to add the law to Christ was to attempt to nullify his efficient faith and faithfulness. Righteousness could only come by the faith of Christ and be maintained by his faithfulness, not by human efforts following the law. Um, Paul will continue in, in personifying faith as Christ and as the faith that has been revealed. It's Galatians 3, um, 23 through 29. So, you know what's coming after, and I just explained what's coming before. So, what's in the middle is going to connect these two things. Now, just to, just to reiterate this one more time, the if you are not in the covenant community of the Jewish people, and you just decide, I'm just going to start doing the practices that they do. I'm going to start acting like them, looking like them, talking like them, you know, uh, eating like them, doing, doing all their cultural things. And by doing that, yeah, I'll be in the covenant. The answer is no. You're brought into the covenant by God's covenantal people. 
Okay. You just don't decide one day, I'm just going to wake up and I'm just going to start doing this stuff. And now I'm in the covenant because you, what you're saying is that if I do all of these things, then I am saved. And that's not how God did things. If you remember um, the story of uh, Abram, who became Abraham, he you know, was an idol worshiper, I believe in Ur, um, who God for no reason, you know, of no reason of Abram's doing, uh, chose him. And uh, out, you know, and out of that choosing, God going out, God redeeming, God choosing, God crediting righteousness. From there comes Israel. And so you can't just go and, and start doing all sorts of things and, and circumcising yourself, you, you know, and all that and all that stuff and um, doing all the Jewish cultural things and then say, OK, I've done all of these things. Therefore, I am Jewish now. No, you're not. That was the problem. If you wanted to do all of that stuff, in addition to Christ, Paul is saying, you're, you're basically saying you don't think that Christ is good enough. You don't think that the grace that God has given is, in fact, good enough. So, the verse-by-verse translation here of, of uh, Galatians 2.15 I'm going to give you each verse. I'm going to give you my translation. So if you're reading in your Bible and your translation looks different, it's just because it's the way that I've translated the Greek and the nuances that I'm going to bring out. Now, each translation, I'm going to give a couple perspectives and then I'm going to just kind of give a small summary of my own, you know, maybe a few more things I think should be in there. First, we're going to look at the new perspective, and then we'll look at the law gospel view. Now, the law gospel view is probably what more people adhere to. And this is the understanding that the Jewish people were trying, they, they, they had to do all these things that God commanded in order to be made righteous, in order to be justified. That understanding, because I, I think that, you know, my earlier talk just now maybe confused a lot of people. They say, wait, wait a minute. No, we know that the Jews had to do all these things in order to be justified. And that's another one of those color shifts. That's another color that was started years ago that has propagated this understanding. If you think that the Jews had to do stuff in order to be saved that is going to color the way that you interpret Paul and the doctrine of justification by faith. Because you're going to look at it as, if you do the works of the law, you are wrong and you are not justified. But if you believe in Christ, you are right and you are justified. Rejection of the law equates, you know, salvation in Christ. And that's not exactly accurate. Um, Luther said, I mean, because Luther agreed with this, he was a law gospel person, and he said it was it was like one motion, turning away from the works of the law, turning to Christ. And by doing that, what you are, are doing is not only turning away from the works of the law, but the spirit of the works of the law, which means any type of works that you do, any type of merit. 
So the first verse we're going to be talking about is going to be um, verse 15. And I'm going to do verse 15 here, and then um, you know we're going to finish up this uh, segment, and we will continue on with the next theology pit. So let's get started here. Verse 15. We are naturally Jews and not from Gentile sinners. This is Paul talking to Peter, okay, at this point. So the new perspective would say that the beginning of the pericope will focus our attention on the ethnic divide between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians regarding their covenantal relationship with God. Galatians in Galatians, the, the expression emphasizes the racial of, uh, of, of, of being a Jew, okay? One is born a Jew. Those who are born into the covenant people have the gift of the law. Okay, this is uh, uh, Frank Matura writing this. By contrast, Gentiles are sinners by the fact that they stand outside of the covenant deprived of the law. So, being born a Jew naturally seemed to carry with it a sense of superiority over those who may have been converted. Now, Richard Longnecker writes um, about this. Um, the pronoun we, like its uh, pronominal counterpart and the verbal suffixes of verse 16, has in mind all Jewish Christians, while the expression itself reflects a rising Jewish antagonism towards Gentiles. Paul's use here uh, probably carries with it a note of irony. And we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Now, the law gospel view. Um, The law gospel would say this. The law of God is the central identifying focus in this verse. People are either Jews or Gentiles about their keeping of the law. Martin Luther writes, The Gentiles were sinners in the sense that they did not have the law, but that did not make the Jews righteous in God's eyes. Jews were sinners too because, like the Gentiles, they had not kept the law of God in the spiritual sense. Paul is making a distinction that is obvious to everyone involved. John Calvin hesitantly thinks that the point address centers on the law. Not that the Jews were exempt from it, but that they would naturally show distinguishing marks from the fo- from following the law. Uh, Calvin says, quote, I do not entirely reject, nor will I soon appear, do I altogether adopt this interpretation, unquote. Uh, Paul is revealing the hypocrisy of Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish Christians. 
Philip Ryken points out that, quote, they, Peter, Barnabas, and the others, uh, did not really believe that the Gentiles were second-class Christians, but they were acting as if they did, unquote. Rakin sees the issue at hand as one that has to do with uh, the requirements for salvation. The problem is not cultural, but sociological. Quote, this is one of the places, Rakin states, where the new perspective on Paul and the law falls short in its understanding of New Testament theology. The new perspective views the Jewish-Gentile conflict primarily in terms of cultural boundaries. The issue, that's unquote, um, the issue is the relationship one has to the law and not ethnic or cultural identities. So, the new perspective sees what's going on as, you know, the body of Christ being split up. That, you know, people are being considered less of a Christian or having a, a, a lesser status, not deserving of, you know, the, uh, um, I, I almost want to say personhood, but the respect that goes along with all being part of Christ. And this is being shown on, you know, an ethnic racial understanding because it's about Gentiles and their behavior in Christ as opposed to Jews and their behavior in Christ. Where the law gospel says no, it's actually in relation to the law. The Gentiles are sinners because they don't do the law. They don't do the works of the law that could that could you know make them that they think could make them righteous. The Jews are just as guilty because they have it, if not more guilty, and they don't do it. So neither one Jew or Gentile is actually doing the law. Therefore, you know, they 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 both have problems. So in my summary here, um, Paul is addressing Peter and the other Jewish Christians in this verse. They, there very well may have been some believers who understood that justification did not come from the works of the law, but to assume that everyone thought that would be a presumptuous homogenization of early Jewish Christians. There are four different ideas that Paul is dealing with. Number one, the Jewish Christians were insisting on adherence to the law for physical identification marker. Number two, the idea that everyone who trusts in Christ is now under the law, whether they are Jews or sinners. Number three, the working of the law is the impetus for justification in Christ. Number four, your ethnicity determines what you must do to be redeemed. If you're a Jew, you need to add Christ. If you are a gentle, you need to add aspects of the law. Both positions recognize that an issue of solidarity has arisen, which is distorting the focus of the gospel message. Paul will make it clear that Christ is to be the central focus for our justification and not by anything that we may or may not do. I would agree with the new perspective on this verse that the central point Paul is making is based on ethnic or cultural superiority through God's election. 
The Reformed position can hold similar attitudes among the clergy and laity in the separation between the elect and non-elect, and even those within the elect. The idea in the church today is that Christ is the means to the end and not the end himself. That's the biggest issue that we have in our churches today. If somebody is, you know, recognized to be a sinner or living a sinful lifestyle, there are some churches that will cast them out, that will throw them out, that um, will stop them from, from doing ministry, have all kinds of, you know, disciplinary issues, and may even drive them out of the church. And some would even consider them not Christians. Because how can you behave in such a way and still be a Christian? Now, right, wrong, or indifferent on that person's sin, they are righteous because of Christ. They're not righteous because of their behavior. You have a desire to do right, but you also have a sinful nature. This sinful nature, you know, will drive you to do wrongheaded things, sinful things, like, you know, throwing somebody out of the church because they didn't look, act, and behave the way that you thought a Christian should. That would be perhaps a sinful thing um, that you may be driven to do. Because what you're saying implicitly and almost explicitly I'd want to say is that you don't trust Christ for your salvation or for somebody else's salvation. You trust in the works that you are doing because of Christ. You believed in Christ in order that you could gain something in order to merit your salvation in order to to merit your justification by doing these things continually. And that's okay if you you think that. I mean, I I think that you're wrong, but this is not a a damnable thing. See, that's if you're starting to think, no, I can't think that way. I can't do that because if I do, then I've lost my faith and I'm no longer saved. And and again, you're you're missing the point. And this is the problem that, you know, a lot of the Puritans had, you know, was was that, you know, not not only did you need a... um, you know, preparationism before you even came to Christ, have faith in Christ. But then there was a moralism afterwards that you had to live a certain way and produce certain works in order for you to be assured of your justification, of your election, of the the, the predestination that was in you. Um, It's the most anxiety-provoking thing you could possibly think of. You have to perform. It's up to you in order to prepare yourself to be saved. And and a lot of them wouldn't say it like that. They would say, no, 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 God gives you his grace in order that you can be prepared. And then at some point you will believe in Christ and then you will merit these things and God will give you the grace to do all that stuff. But where is the point of, of, of assurance that like Luther and Calvin talked about? I mean, Luther and Calvin's whole idea, even if they were, you know, a, a little bit um, off, I would say, just a tiny, because I don't, I don't agree with them completely, but they were on the right track of, of, of the spirit of, you know, being justified in Christ and what that meant. They were saying, look, no, this is an assurance. You're in Christ. 
you're going to be, you're justified. You're going to be, you know, you're redeemed. You're going to be sanctified. You're going to be glorified. All this stuff is, is, is happening because you are in Christ. And then we've taken it with this understanding of, of faith being in three parts, knowledge, assent, and trust, and focusing on all that, and then turning that into works and saying, by these works, by these fruits, is how we will know whether or not you've been justified. And it's not the attitude or the rest resting on Christ or the understanding of him that is the fruit that's showing. It's every aspect of your life, and depending on who is making the determination on whether or not you are truly a Christian is going to be based on a list of works that they have made up. And they could even say, well, we've gotten it from scripture. But the way that they're applying it, they've actually developed a new law. They developed some type of like Christian law that they would say would parallel the Mosaic law. So you have the law of justification through Christ, the new covenant, which is all these works and things that we have to do because we are in the covenant. But this covenant, you know, doing all these works shows that, you know, you are justified. It's not Christ. It's all of these works. The focus is all on you. The focus is all on your works. And they do that because they figure the way that the Mosaic Law worked was the same way. You do all of these works so that you can be justified. But the difference that they say is that justification in the, in, in the New Testament has been made easier. It's a, a, a lowered market. As, as it's been called. It's uh, easy and reasonable conditions. What they say is that, yeah, the Mosaic Law is impossible. So what Christ did is he came and he fulfilled that and he gave us a new covenant. That's a lot more, it's a lot easier to maintain. We just do the best that we can and we can maintain that. But the best that you can do is A, B, C, and D. And we have a measurement rod for that. We have, we have a canon for that. And that just becomes an even bigger problem. Okay, because one of the things that Luther was fighting against that the, the, the scholastics of the time were um, arguing for was um, a, a, a the Latin phrase is, um, let me see if I can remember it properly, uh, facare quid enseest, which means the best that you can do. It just basically means you do the best that you can do. And what Luther was started in what what he was trained in was this idea that you do the best that you can do whatever that is god will give you grace and with that grace you continue to do the best that you can do and then you will be justified Okay, now that's different from, I mean, it's Aristotelian in a sense, because Aristotle would say, you just do the best that you can do, and that doing the best is justifying you. That, that is your justification, you doing the best that you can do. Where, you know, what the scholastics were, were saying, what Luther was, was, was getting at here, is that, you know, you do the best that you can do, so that you get grace eventually from God, so that you will have faith in Christ to do the best that you can do, and that will justify you. So it's all God. 
Luther looked at that eventually and said, no, that's completely wrong. And he even, I mean, I know he's very popular for his 95 thesis. There are other theses that he wrote, and one is against the, um, the, the scholastics. And he was saying, no, it's not like that at all. You are given the grace of God freely. There's nothing you can do to earn that at all. It is the imputation of Christ's righteousness that we're talking about here. We are talking about grace being given to you. And with that grace, you are then doing the best that you can with that grace that you are given. And having that faith in Christ and doing the best that you can, because of that grace, God will complete what he has begun and therefore justified. That's where justification is. So, Luther's not exactly perfect on it, in my opinion. You know, he's not. But with what was going on in his life, that's what he was dealing with. People saying that you still had a spark of the divine in you, that the fall did not completely crush your will, and that you could still search. Even though in, in, in Romans, um, Paul is, is yeah, quoting um, Psalm 14 and saying that no one searches for God, no, not one, nobody does. You know, so whether you think that you have free will or not, it doesn't matter. Like it, you know, Paul says, even if you think about it this way, if you, if you have complete libertarian free will to where you can fight God, you know, and you can fight God's will and, and totally resist him, Paul says, you still don't search. You still don't look for God. And he's taking that from the Old Testament. That's not even something that Paul's coming up with. That's an Old Testament understanding. All right? It's a, a Jewish understanding. And if you say that you know, we, we, we don't have free will, we're under bondage, as, as you know, Luther would call it, bondage of the will, well, then the outcome is still the same. Nobody searches. Nobody at all. It has to be a work of God to start with. And that's what Luther got right, that it is starts with the work of God in you. Therefore, you get this work of God, this, this grace in order to believe, this faith. And he said that, you know, uh, faith was passive, that it was the conduit through which, uh, you know, grace comes in and your faith holds justification and holds Christ like a, like a, uh, a precious jewel in a ring, you know. Uh, the ring is the faith and it's clasping the jewel of justification. It's holding on to it. That's how you get it. Um, Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, you, you can read that in there. Um and so, here's the understanding now of what faith is doing. Okay, faith actually has some type of of of, of position. It it has some type of force. It has some type of action. But at the same time, it doesn't. It's supposed to be passive, and that is problematic for me, for it being art- articulated in those two ways. We never see faith as passive. We always see faith as active in Scripture. It's it's an active thing that's going on. Um, there's no comprehension of it um, just being a cognitive you know a- a- adherence to something there's all it's it's in behavior it's in it's in action um, Ian Wallace uh, wrote a, um, a really good book called the faith of Jesus Christ in uh, early Christian early Christian traditions and when he talks about how the Jewish people understood faith and how they understood what it was they would talk about it in narrative form because it's it's in an action it's in a behavior it's more than just a cognitive ascent but in the time of the reformers 
it gets moved into uh, the understanding that faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. You have to know stuff, you have to assent to stuff, or you know, give yourself to it, and then you have to really trust. Your trust is in it completely. And that's why you'll have these articulations that say, no, you are justified by faith alone or faith in Christ alone. And that's always stressed because if you believe that you have faith in Christ and in dietary laws and in circumcision and in obedience to you know a statement of faith at your church or whatever, whatever it is, anything that you've slightly added to Christ, well then for some reason that nullifies it. Then you are not saved. Because it's in Christ alone, all by himself. But the irony of that entire thing is that you're saying that it's not faith alone. You're saying that it's faith only, and there can't be anything else. So if that's the case, you're, you know, let's say that you mistakenly added something, you know, that you didn't think it was that big of a deal. You know, and now all of a sudden you've added this doctrine of faith alone. So I have to believe that I am justified by, by Christ, by in Christ, by faith alone. And I have to believe that doctrine that I'm justified by Christ and faith alone. And if I don't believe that doctrine that I'm justified by faith alone, which is another thing that you're adding to, you know, faith alone in Christ, well, then I'm not saved. So you need two things to, to have faith in Christ alone and to adhere to that doctrine of faith in Christ alone. By your own standards, you've negated the exact doctrine that you're trying to put forth. But, thanks be to God, that understanding that you've put forth is incorrect, imbalanced. Um, it's it's uh, incomplete, let's say. Justification, as we're going to see in verse 16, is the understanding that it is by Christ's faith that you're justified. And we're going to make the argument for that. We're going to look at the new perspective. Um, we're going to look at the law gospel understanding, and we're going to look at the summary and that's really going to be the majority of the next theology pit because people have a lot of opinions on this. And these opinions have even dictated the way that um, the translations have come across, depending on what translation you're, you're reading. So I would encourage you to look carefully over uh, verse 16 chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, before the next podcast. And think about what is being said in you know, that verse, particularly, in, in your translation, in that meaning. And then maybe look at another translation. Or, you know what, sometimes in the footnotes, like good, good um, study Bibles will have in the footnotes, uh, you know, a... Um, and another acceptable translation, and you're going to see faith of, faithfulness, or faith in, in the um, in the translation. And each one of those has a different implication. It's coming from a different place. And if you're insisting that it's your faith that is doing the work, that is doing the 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 is the instrumental thing that is grasping a hold, it is the thing that is being done. Then you are going to read faith in very differently if you say that it's passive not so much 
All right, thanks a lot for listening. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. 